Welcome to Unpack This, where academic misfits unload their shit. I am Joe Shu. And I am Constance Bailey. And today we'll be talking about an article that Constance recently published in Women in Higher Education titled It's Coming from Inside the House. It explores some interesting elements of academic experience that relates to a lot of what we're talking about, and we can delve a little further in this particular genre. So I'm hoping, Constance, you might begin by summarizing the piece for our audience. Yeah, for sure. We'll be sure to link it in the show notes. But it's interesting that the editor pulled out that line because I initially planned on the piece being titled The Plight of the Invisible Academic. But I was, well, actually, we'll talk about the context later. I'll just do the summary, right? So the article is about, uh, it's really about the ambivalence. And I would probably say liminality. It really is about family commitments, right? And about people who, who are in fields that are very different from academia and how the work of academics, and in this case, particularly me. So it's a first person, subjective, reflective piece about me and my mother. So in some ways, it's a kind of about generational ideas about work and the value attached to work. And it's really fundamentally about the I think the disappointment and maybe even heartbreak that I sometimes feel because my mom does not understand what I do and doesn't necessarily, I, I should say, maybe doesn't value what I do because it's not the same type of tactile you know, work that she had to do, um, which doesn't diminish that work. It is no less hard, no less difficult. So in many ways, I'm trying to connect sort of my struggle with that of other uh, people, primarily, I think, academics who come from working class backgrounds where our families did a different type of work, right, and did, were not engaged in the life of the mind regularly. And so what does it look like then when uh, that person perceives you as kind of living the life, right? And so at one point, I, I mentioned those memes where there's like what my students think I do, what my uh, colleagues think I do, what I actually do, you know, and they have those for all different professions. I find those quite hilarious, but it, it felt very, to some degree, comical to me at times, like the type of misunderstandings that my mother would have about my work. Like when I'm at a conference, she thinks I'm hanging out, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, which I, I might be, but that's not my primary purpose. I would do other things and choose other locations to just go hang out with friends. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't have to hire a babysitter and it wouldn't be expensive and inconvenient and all those other things. So yeah, I don't know if I actually said what it, what it's about, but anyway, that's a lot of random details that you could cobble together. Yeah. You touched on what it captures and one of those elements of experiencing the Academy as an outsider, as somebody who grew up in environments that are not anticipated by the Academy and whose experience of it also puts you in a place of alienation, I think, from spaces that were once familiar. Uh, for me, the, the way that certain types of knowledge in the Academy or certain types of labor made me feel increasingly like an outsider in certain home communities uh, was something that wasn't very often discussed or made visible in a lot of academic spaces, isn't anticipated very much. Um, there's actually, there's this line from your article that I'd like you to go into a little further because I think it captures some of what you're doing. And you write, I want to reflect on the unique precarity of a certain type of academic, those whose proximity to home in the form of family has been both a blessing and a curse. 
And can you say more about this? Like, what, what do you mean by proximity to home? And how do the structures of academic life fail to anticipate? Or how do they act against this sort of proximity that you're talking about? Yeah, so I, I don't know that I'll get to the second part in, because I probably will have forgotten the second part of the question by the time I answer the first part. But uh, before I answer the first part, I do want to say like one of the things that your comment makes me think about is that there's this expression and I'll try to tweak it for academia. So I would say like we are in academia, but we're not of academia, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, or at least that's been my feeling, right? So to be in a particular place, but to not have been groomed or a product of this place is sort of interesting. And is that uh, Moton and Harney's The Undercommons? Is that where that's from? I don't recall. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. We'll put but, it in the show notes. But to the first part. So home could be metaphoric and it could also be uh, literal. So I like it as a metaphor and a symbol, but I also like, in, in my case, I was specifically invoking home because of the pandemic. So a lot of my academic work was specifically occurring in the context of the home and around my desk, right? Where I am sitting at this very moment. Whereas before, I think pre-pandemic, the office or let's say the coffee shop or a library corral, you know, other spaces were places that I would write, grade, teach. But because of the pandemic, the focal point of everything was was my desk, right? So there are, you know, books just falling around. Like you probably literally see books falling around me. And so more largely than home is just is family. And I know you write about a lot about home. So family, community, kinship networks, however we want to think about that. So for me, quite specifically, because of some of my medical stuff, I had um I was blessed, right? The blessing in it was that my mother was still able-bodied and not too old to help me physically um, to recover from surgery and to help chauffeur my kids and to do all of those things. So I really was very thankful and grateful for that. But as any as any child who has a mother and is blessed to have a, a mother who is living knows that living with your parents, but specifically a mother, can be quite challenging in spite of the added advantage of having kind of sort of built-in childcare, having an extra set of eyes to help with homework. So there are just some inherent advantages, but of course there's a backside of that. So that was the sort of blessing and curse. But I really think about not everyone is going to have this nuclear family. So some of us have extended kinship networks or friendship to however we think about home, right? So, yeah. I think something you're capturing is that the pandemic put us into whatever our places of residence look like uh, for a prolonged period. And that presented very different challenges for different people. You know, for folks who live alone, it was suddenly a huge degree of isolation that they were unable to alleviate. And for others, maybe they were unpleasant living situations. And for still more of us, even if we're living with people we love, being confined in the same house for uh, a long time, houses that were not meant to be houses and offices for multiple people at the same time, it was it was definitely a lot. So you captured the, the blessing part, being able to have your mother there to care for you while you're going through, while you're recovering from your medical procedures. What about the curse? Are you trying to get me in trouble, Joe? No, no, no. no, no. I, but I, we are talking about the ways that these things no, create unanticipated struggle. It's all good. I, because my mom, as I say in the piece, I don't mention the podcast, but she probably will never read that article. And she probably will never listen to this podcast, which does not mean that she has not been supportive and invaluable to my academic career. She absolutely has. And so the curse, I think, just comes from 
um, just ideological differences, which I think just might be generational. <laughs> so there's lots of like, you know, different ideas about parenting, different ideas about structure and just some idiosyncratic differences. She's a little bit, I, I like a clean and tidy house when I can get Mary or Molly maids or somebody over, but, but that can't be on my hierarchy of my own personal task because I have too many others. Um, so I think that was part of it. She tends to be more introverted. I tend to be more extroverted. So just thoughts about sort of how I spend my time. But again, the physical isolation of the pandemic was augmented by my medical recovery. So I couldn't physically couldn't leave for a while. And so the curse just became where it seemed like Whereas you and I are talking right now in this podcast, sometimes we just talk about garbage Netflix things, but also sometimes we we have really fruitful, generative academic conversations that lead to potential collaborations or other wonderful ideas and things gestate in those discussions. And so one of my virtual writing groups where I was pretty much every day for a while online with these other scholars, mostly Black women, we'd have a guy pop in. But um, it seemed like, I think to her, that was frivolous time. And so the curse sort of became where there was this value judgment and she was vocal about, <laughs> about her perception of what I was doing or in, in that case, what I was not doing. And I had to try to explain to her I'm working and, and work doesn't look like how she understands work to look. That's, so that's the sort of bumping heads. Again, some of it's generational, some of it's persons, you know, specific to our personalities. Mm-hmm. Some of it's, it's different ideas about what, what has value. And yeah. so, yeah. And some of it is part of the way that this place being academia makes its work illegible to a lot of other, a lot of other folks. Um, you reminded me of this story. The winter between 2019 and 2020, my partner and I were in Taiwan for the first time in a really long time for me. And we were talking to my cousin, who was trying to explain to me sort of his goal in terms of coming to America, which, you know, has a certain romanticization, and what his like professional goals were. And it turns out that he wants to be a tenure track professor. And he tried to explain to me what that was and what research universities were. And I had to pause and say, you don't actually know what I do for a living, do you? Like nobody in my family, it turns out, knows that this is actually my job. Um, and I'm not sure that it would matter if they did. But what you're speaking to is like is the way that that has, for me too, been largely illegible, both to family of birth, but also to other sorts of, you know, chosen or found family who raised me. And I struggle with that because sort of the thing I've always known about myself is like writing is is the thing I do. It's the thing I can do, uh, especially as I get, have gotten more and more disabled. There are forms of advocacy and change that I find myself unable to participate in some sometimes when I am confined to my house or unable to stand for long periods or whatever it is. And I know that there is work here that is important, having found that my own life was saved by work that I found in here. But I also know that a lot of it looks like not work to a lot of people and that the changes we're advocating for sometimes take a really long time to sort of emerge and often are gradual systemic collaborative. They're not like, you know, this one person did a thing and they have this one achievement. And so for me, sometimes that feels really crushing. Sometimes it feels like I have spent my entire life doing this thing that a lot of people that I care about will never be able to see or recognize. So I'm, I'm curious 
what keeps you here? You know, what, what's sort of the flip side of that? What is the rewarding thing? What's motivating you? Yeah, well, those are all great observations, although I'm, I'm very uh, tickled, I think is the expression I would use about your, your cousin who wants to be a <laughs> tenure track professor. <laughs> It's like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? Oh, yeah, that's a whole different <laughs> road we can go down. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the large part is my students. Lots of people know I have a deep and abiding commitment to students and to educating folks. I think, you know, I, I won't ever be the, the Michael Jordan of the, of the game, but I got to be the, oh, me and these, these botched sports metaphors, but uh, <laughs> maybe Phil Jackson or maybe the Steve Kerr to to Steph Curry or something. I, I want to mentor other people who need to see a Black woman scholar in the classroom or who need to see a person of color or who might just need to see a friendly face, right? Some academics have been so, I don't want to, broken maybe? The process has, I don't know if it's jaded them. I don't know if they don't remember what it's you know like to have been a student. And, and so, you know, sometimes we just kind of lose touch with the sort of practical day-to-day struggles and challenges that students have. And so I really try to stay grounded in that because it's a struggle bus every day to try to, (laughs) for me to get to work, for me to be fully functioning, for me to bring my A game. And so I tend to have a lot of empathy, but also that, you know, my research, that is important to me. We've talked a little bit about the book project, but one of the things that I should, should say more specifically is that Part of what this article is really fleshing out is explored in the fourth chapter of the book, uh, probably more so than any. So the book project is the representations of the Black collegian and popular culture. So collegiate scholars, the undergrad level and postgraduate as well. So Black academics. And a part of what happens is this very class-based schism where, and it's generational for sure, because I can't go into this too much today, but you know, there's like the blurred aesthetic. Second and third generation Black college graduates don't have the same relationship as folks from my mom's generation with other academics, right? So by the time you get to a childish Gambino who jokes about his college degrees and how educated he is, it's almost kind of tongue in cheek. All that to say, like we see along generational lines, this hostility or resentment towards college educated Black Americans, because there is the perception, rightly or wrongly, that Black academics are elitist, they're out of touch, they are removed from their communities. And I can, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about trying to do sort of community based research and engaged scholarship, because one, I never want anyone to get that perception of me, which is fine. If you, if, you, if you don't work in communities, like there are plenty of academics and people who are doing valuable things and it doesn't have to look the way that, that you think it should look. So that's the one thing like for old heads and old school folks, like stop being so full of yourself and stop being <laughs> so, stop projecting. Like if it's not this thing, then it's not okay or it's not valid. Um, but I mean, the other thing is that I really do want to be working in, I mean, in home communities. I talk a lot about generational knowledge and quilting and 
folk sayings and Black women's humor and lessons that I got from my grandma and, you know, shelling peas. I'm young enough to to remember hanging or old enough. Am I young enough, old enough? I had to hang out clothes on the clothesline, basically. So there were times before washing machines and dryers existed. I know my kids would not believe that, but some of that has a lot of value for me. And I appreciate being able to expose folks who don't necessarily have that experience, but to say, hey, just because something is not your experience doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And so a part of that is, you know, just trying to expose people to different perspectives and different ideas about things, right? Just those are the specific mechanisms by which I'm able to do that. But it's no different than what I think most scholars who have some type of philosophical you know, orientation are, are thinking about like, how can we open people's minds or enlighten folks or expand their thinking? So that's a rambling response. <laughs> I, I'm really glad you went there with that response. I don't think we've, we've talked about this specific thing quite yet. I, cause you know, I, for me, my first book is also community engaged in a way that was very intentional. It was, I want to go to spaces that make me feel very differently than academic spaces and sort of sit and learn in these spaces. And the thing I wound up running into again and again is that I didn't want to be the researcher in that space. You know, like I knew that I was, and I knew that that came with a whole lot of responsibilities and, and ways that I needed to sort of comport myself. But also I was aware of the sort of historical violence that I was embodying by being in that room, that historically academic researchers have made objects of a lot of people in these spaces in a way that was dehumanizing. And I obviously didn't want to replicate that, but it made me think very deeply about how do I carry knowledge from these spaces in a way that doesn't replicate that sort of violence, in a way that doesn't expose them, in a way that doesn't make it easily commodifiable for the academy, which is what it historically has done. And so I don't know that we've talked about this before. I'm very, I'm just very curious if you've also sort of grappled with that or like what you do with that sort of, I don't know, feeling. Yeah, I mean, I grapple with it, and I'm not sure. Maybe by the time the manuscript is finished, I will have a better sense of what the quote-unquote correct answer is. Yes, I, I do often struggle with how do I write about and talk about these images without reifying the negative stereotypes. So two chapters are about popular representations of, of Black college students, particularly Black college bands, which there's very little research on, and then one is against Black fraternities and sororities. And, you know, how do I talk about these cultural experiences without, for outsiders, without exoticizing it? And even for this project, I don't actually get to do um, as much in terms of ethnographic work as I would like. But, you know, some of those same ethical questions that come up when you're trying to work with a group, particularly a group that you identify with, how do you not do the sort of cliche thing? So... This first project feels a little bit safer because for the most part, I am working with static representations so I can avoid some of the ethical pitfalls, but it's hard. It's something for those of us who are doing engaged and community-based work, I think it's just something that we constantly struggle with, right? Um, how do we do work that's satisfying, that's rewarding, that's useful, hopefully, and meaningful to these groups without damaging those groups, without fracturing those relationships, and without problematizing further stigmatizing potentially those groups. So yeah, I think it's just fraught with a lot of intellectual and ethical dilemmas that I'm I'm trying to tread very lightly. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, for me the the sort of light bulb 
moment when I was working on the book was when I discovered Audra Simpson's work um, and also Tuck and Yang's extension on refusal. It's, it's on ethnographic work, which isn't quite what I'm doing. And it's also from decolonial studies. The idea that there are certain things that the Academy has not earned, to, you know, doesn't have the right to see, and that it is sometimes more generative to point that out than to actually go straight into the story that they're expecting to hear. So like there are moments when I try to do that with like a, a nonfiction sleight of hand, which is like you expect to see this scene of harm or violence, and it might exist, but you're not going to see it. And you're going to sit with with why, right? Like why you have not earned that gaze. And and I don't know that it's perfect either, but it for me in this iteration of the project gave me a way to sort of drop a curtain when I wanted to. Um, but I think I'll, I will continue grappling with that. And I think we all will because we get dropped into these currents of harmful history and, and we do what we can to not further the sort of actions that are already in motion. Yeah, I may have to try that. I don't know if I can pull any kind of strategic since I'm still immersed in the writing of the thing, see if I can pull some sort of strategic frame, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's <laughs> a wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, so I'm interested. I, I wonder, and this is a question I think that you may pose for me too, but I'll ask you uh, first. I'll beat you to the punch, right? So there's this line where I say, with great education comes great responsibility, which of course I completely bit from Spider-Man, I'm sure people <laughs> recognize. But then I said, but to whom do we pay our debt? And I guess I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about responsibility and debt in terms of your own experience and actions? Yeah. Um, I don't really mean to keep going back to the book, but I think this book project was something that I had to write in that it it helped me situate myself within what am I doing with this work in this space and what am I committed to? Who am I working for? And one of the concepts that comes from theory that I really like in terms of applying it to life is uh, the way that scholars of queer diaspora think through intimacy and, and also disability studies scholars too. So thinking about intimacy, not just as like, you know, the traditional romanticized closeness, but also any sort of proximity that might create imbalances in power. Uh, there's a concept of forced intimacy that comes from crip studies that is how disabled people have to disclose parts of their own experience and their needs because they need to get access to systems that weren't designed for them. And so when I think through responsibility, I'm thinking through all of those possible intimacies with my life, you know, how does my own personal trajectory put me into deeper histories? What sort of uneven privileges, affordances, resources am I inheriting? And what should I be doing with those things? Who else is experiencing similar types of harms? And what possible connections can I forge from there? And, you know, there's an infinite amount of work that comes from that sort of reflection that you could po never possibly get to in a lifetime. Oh, but sure. that's sort of the series of questions that I go down. And so it, it also means that I've sort of read very haphazardly in many directions in my work because I want to know about all of the decolonial things. I want to know who's doing work on anti-Blackness and what that looks like. I want to know what conversations about immigration looks like from Latinx studies and borderlands, right? Like I want to think about how our different ways of understanding the harm that we're all sort of immersed in, um, what resonances come from that, what tensions, and how do we connect these things into a bigger 
portrait of where we are and how we move from here. So I guess that's a long way to say that I think of responsibility very, very broadly in terms of, you know, how does my life put me in contact with others and what responsibility does that contact uh, give me? What can I do with my resources to, again, minimize harm and maximize good and connection? Um, and that that is also similarly how I think about debt. What about you? Yeah, I wish I had a sophisticated answer, but when all else fails, I I just fall back on cliches, which have served me well. So, <laughs> so I mean, in terms of, I, I just, in terms of responsibility, I just think of my privilege relative to those who have less privilege than I do. And so I try to and here's where the cliche comes in, pay it forward. So I don't feel as beholden to the sacrifices that my mother and grandmother and great-grandmothers, I'm thankful for their sacrifices. I know that, that my work is, is made possible by strides and gains and sacrifices that they had to make. My main concern is to try to make the path better. I don't know about easier, but better. <laughs> For people who are coming behind me and who are treading that same path. So I would just gonna invoke some metaphor about walking in the footsteps of of, of giants, but you know I like mi- mix metaphors and butcher things all the time. But anyway, yeah, I really think that I just have a responsibility to those with less privilege than myself and and I'm trying to pay back some of what was given to me. But again, working in multiple fields and multiple disciplines has granted me access to many different types of knowledge and bodies of research. And it's sort of good and bad because there are more stakeholders and you feel like the onus is on you as a scholar to be sure that you are ethically and responsibly working in those fields and knowledgeably so it can spread you a little bit thin I think academically there's certainly great reward in terms of being able to be welcomed and embraced by those fields but also then having access to influence people up and coming scholars working in those respective fields so yeah, I don't know if that answered the question but that's my <laughs> It did. It it also gets me to that that next question because I I often think about it in these terms, right? I I stay in academia as long as it allows me to keep doing work toward the world that I want to build, to sort of give to or create possibilities for the communities that I find myself indebted to or in, in deep relationship with. And so when I think about what sort of parachute will get me out of the academy, I'm also often thinking through what other jobs would allow me to do those things. So I'm curious, if you weren't doing this job, what else do you think you would be doing? Wow. You know, this is funny because I just had this conversation with someone recently, uh, <laughs> but I, I would be doing what I'm doing now in the sense that I wouldn't necessarily be a scholar. Mm-hmm. I would probably be running a nonprofit organization. That is a position I have applied for and been offered on some smaller scale, not like a huge like regional or national organization. But when I say that I'm doing that now, a lot of the group fitness stuff or activities that I have done, initially when I started that um, hobby, what we'd call a hobby group fitness instructor, right? Like that's not my main job. I do it quote unquote for fun. 
I thought of it as like, you know, a secondary income and, and something for fun. Now, the more that I think about it and, you know, I'm now in the process of trying to reimagine that because one of the things that I said I was going to do before I got my PhD, I was looking into masters of public health programs and thinking about how to work. And you and I both have, you know, an interest in wellness and health, not necessarily systematically, but sort of more broadly. Um, but, you know, I was trying to imagine how could, could I make primarily African-American communities healthier, but also pushing back against what we think about as health, right? And that bodies don't have to look like what sort of normative, mainstream, quote unquote, healthy bodies look like. So that was over a decade ago, probably 15 years ago, that I was thinking about a holistic, comprehensive wellness facility that, you know, while there have been great YMCAs and other community access spaces, some of those things, uh, two or $300 a year, does not seem like much compared to like a gym membership, but it's a lot for someone on a fixed income. And so I always said that I would probably try to get grant funding to open such a facility in a community that, you know, needed that. And that was one of the things that um, it, it wasn't ever, it was never really um, an either or, it was a maybe a but win type thing. So that is something that um, I've been trying to think about how, uh, when I decide to leave academia, because I do think not necessarily that it's inevitable, but unless there's a way to sort of, you know, make both identities work at some point, you know, I would probably go move towards doing that and soliciting grants to support such a, an enterprise. And one of the things that I've recently come to the conclusion is that you can, the group fitness identity, um, sort of makes it easier because if I stop thinking about that as a job or a for-profit thing and think about it ideologically and sort of restructure that as like a nonprofit organization and entity, then I can do some of that community programming that would sort of start me on that path, right? Um, so that is, when I say it's something I do, like the online group fitness classes that I taught mostly during the pandemic were pretty much free and people could donate if they had money. But most of the time people didn't, you know, it was people who were trying to get active and were, you know, just um, in their homes and couldn't get out and they couldn't afford a costly gym membership or they didn't feel safe enough to go to the gym. And now even in thinking about like app development, I'm thinking, okay, how could I do this in a way that would make it free slash $5 or instead of like a 20 or 30, like I do a lot of group fitness type of things. I'm in like a mom's group, but it's like 80 bucks a month. And I can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's just mm -hmm. not, that's not my vision. And it's okay. I don't have any judgment about people. Like, especially if you're in an industry and you're trying to make money, like I get that cost, like it's okay. But for me, it's more about the vision and less about the money. You, you know, you got to make enough money to support the kids. Like they like to eat, <laughs> but, but, um, but I don't necessarily want to think of it as a, um, you know, as a, as a revenue stream in that way. Um, so sorry, that was a really long answer, but yeah. What about you? What would you be doing if you were not in academia? I, I enjoy that long answer. I, I learned things about you, Constance. Um, if I weren't in academia, I feel like the answer is kind of sprawling, but sort of has the same core, which is at the end of the day, I've always been thinking through how do you create platforms that tell stories 
that change the ways that we encounter one another in the world, right? And I feel like I could see it taking several different forms. I could see myself doing things like patient advocacy. I could see myself working in public health spaces. I could also see myself working on sort of um, POC, queer and trans driven sort of media platforms, just because, I mean, a fact about the coverage of the anti-trans laws that always sticks with me is that the vast majority of that coverage is from uh, right-wing publications, which means that for the most part, left-wing publications just haven't cared, right? Like they just haven't touched on it, which means that the entire narrative is being shaped by conservatives. And when liberals are responding, they're responding Mm -hmm. to an argument that's already been given to them, right? They're Mm -hmm. playing defense because they never got on the offense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how do you create- often, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're right. So so how do you create sort of platforms that give people the sort of authority to, to shape the narratives about them in the world? Part of this problem is that, you know, a bunch of newsrooms are run by a bunch of cis white dudes um, who get to look at our stories and decide whether or not they're worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, part of the scary thing about stuff like that is that I don't know what the path to doing things like that looks like. So one of the, the reasons that I, I got here is because I knew school and I understood how school worked. And, you know, school got me to a place where I have the privilege of being financially secure enough to worry about how do I do these things out in the world, right? So for now, it gives me the sort of shelter and safety to think about how I maneuver in other spaces. Um, The moment that it stops doing that is when I start thinking about what that parachute looks like and how I get to someplace else. No, I love that answer. You know, that's so funny that over the course of our friendship, we learn like things that like nothing you said surprised me and I'm sure nothing I said surprised you, but you might not have known it. So right. that's sort of funny, but I have you by a few years. I'm a couple years older than Joe. I won't reveal my secrets, but <laughs> I think it's ironic because you're absolutely right. Or, or I'm absolutely in agreement in terms of that's why I chose academia. It felt safe. It allowed mm-hmm. me to be financially stable. I didn't have to be rich. I could provide for my children. But it also gave me a little bit of wiggle room, not a lot, but a little bit of time to start exploring and start branching out into things that were adjacent. And I think it's interesting because those side projects, which we talked about on our side hustles a little bit, but we never we never got that episode published. But they're still adjacent to like your work is still about home community and about making spaces better for people. And my work. Um, this advocacy is still about community health and wellness and and how do we become whole and it's about sort of a holistic approach to um, black community so while the one project other side project might be something that I might need um, National Institutes of Health like NIH funding for the academic correlation to that might be might need NEH funding or uh, NEA funding, a, a National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, but but it's still the same, you know, it's two different arms of the same thing. So I think that's the beauty of um, some of the, the side projects that we pursue um, because they help give us inroads into some of those other things. So, you know, we could definitely... And I harass my friends all the time, but um, we, we can harass uh, Nikita Reed about Arkansas Soul as an alternative media yeah. outlet and how you start to, you know, like what gave her that vision. So I think, you know, uh, sometimes we have our friends on, we should ask different questions, right? <laughs> like, we want to talk about this other juicy thing, but like, let's also talk about like, hey, how do we do this other really cool thing? Because that's the thing I think 
some of the um, people I've encountered have helped me start reimagining um, mm. or start to think about what that next step might look like. So, yeah. Yeah, I I like that. And we should definitely have Nikita back on uh, to have her talk about something other than, you know, uh, Amazon Prime's master. I know, right? <laughs> well, we could talk about that, too. But that's worth revisiting. But yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I uh, think that's it for this episode. I want to remind our listeners that they can find us. I am now on Twitter at VoxJoshu. Uh, you can also find Constance. What's your handle? Um, you know what? It, I don't remember the handle, but my my current, um, you know, I, Twitter, I don't understand the technology. It's so hard to find people on Twitter. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but if you type in Constance the Academic, <laughs> aka D-E-M-I-C, then you would find me because my handle might be my first and last name or some some semblance of who knows but yeah constance the academic and you can also email us at the unpack this podcast at gmail.com and yeah let us know what you'd like us to unpack we should have some pop culture stuff coming up soon maybe and yeah just just let us know what you want to hear and we'll we'll try to talk about it (laughs) thanks for listening